This, 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 this is the Pat O'Keefe Show on 98.7 ESPN. Awesome that, for a number of reasons, when the U.S. Open, the final round of the U.S. Open falls on Father's Day every year. First of all, just in terms of, you know, content and viewing and storylines, in the vast majority of cases, the golfer who wins the U.S. Open on this day was introduced to the game by his father and there is always that built-in you know connection uh how did you start in the game who got you started who mentored you growing up and and the win the championship is as special for the dad in so many cases as it is for the golfer that's across all sports and that's across all areas of life you know if your child enjoys success it is in so many ways uh your success and we saw that on Thursday night in Boston, after the Warriors won the NBA championship, and in the moments just after the game ended, Stephen Curry uh, sharing an emotional embrace with his dad, Del Curry, the former NBA All-Star, current NBA broadcaster. I mean, it's just a, it's a special moment between fathers and sons, daughters and fathers, fathers and daughters, and, and that's what this day is all about. So happy Father's Day to all the dads. It was noteworthy. I found it very interesting. The... The Warriors, you talk about father-son connections. The Warriors had four players, all of them in the rotation, by the way, four players on Golden State whose fathers played in the NBA. Now, the best among them was Gary Payton II's father, Gary Payton, the glove, who was voted earlier this year as one of the top 76 players of all time. Del Curry was an all-star. Clay Thompson's father, Michael Thompson, had a solid career. was actually the number one pick in the NBA draft coming out of college. And Andrew Wiggins' father uh, played in the NBA. And then on the other side for Boston, you had, we saw him throughout the playoffs, Al Horford's father, Tito, uh, played in the NBA as well. So you had five guys in that series whose dads played in the NBA. So a nice connection there. Uh, And then you have the continued story of just this glorious, glorious baseball season. Uh, that we're enjoying here in New York. The Mets continue to roll. They're the best team in the National League. Um, And then you have on the other side of town, the Yankees are by far and away the best team in Major League Baseball right now. And I got to be honest with you. I mean, and I was there for 98. I was in college at the time and following that each and every day. And again, you tend to maybe forget a few details over the years and just how dominant that team was. But I don't remember that team or any other team I've ever seen day in and day out in baseball being as good and as dominant as this Yankees team. I just don't. This is the best I've ever seen a baseball team play over a two, three month stretch. And it's amazing. The, 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 the goal here or the hope for baseball fans in New York is that these two teams ultimately see each other at the end of the season. That would be incredible. And it would be, I think better than it was in 2000 because the Mets right now are on more equal footing than the Yankees with with the Yankees than they were in 2000. In 2000 they really weren't on equal footing. The Mets were a wild card team. I mean that Mets outfield that started in the 2000 World Series, Jay Payton, um Benny Agbayani and Timo Perez. That's got to go down with all due respect to those guys. I mean this is it's a knock and it's um it's praise for these guys because they perform so well in big spots. But just in terms of the names, it's one of the worst starting outfields ever in World Series history. And they were going up against the Yankees team that was uh, 
a dynasty. They were in, right in the middle of their dynasty at the time. That's not the case now. And I think the reason why this Yankees team is playing better than any team I've ever seen is because of the expectations. I think before this season, there were more expectations for the Mets than there were for the Yankees. There weren't a lot of expectations for this Yankees team. Nobody expected this. In fact, I just remember day after day, and we played promos about it on this station, callers into the Michael K show just complaining on end about the lack of moves that were made during the offseason. And even the one big move that Brian Cashman did make was not well-received. I mean, people, I think, were excited to get Gary Sanchez out of town. He had certainly run his course here. But the return being Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, who wasn't setting the world on fire, and Josh Donaldson, a guy who's clearly on the back nine of his career and comes with a hefty price tag and, to be honest, has not performed that well. That was the big move in the offseason. And that led to a lot of disappointment and consternation among Yankee fans. But what has proceeded from there has been a baseball team that everything that can go right has gone right for this team. I mean, the pitching staff has been the story and it starts there. Nestor Cortez, best pitcher in the American league so far. I'll tell you right now, the guy who pitched yesterday has been as good as almost anybody in the American League this year. Jamison Tyone. Jordan Montgomery has been outstanding. You've gotten the bounce back that you've needed from Luis Severino. And Garrett Cole has had a couple of bad starts. He had one recently. He bounced back nicely from that the other night against Tampa Bay. But when Garrett Cole, statistics-wise, is your fifth starter, and his stats aren't that bad, you're in a great place. And then you add on to that the bullpen. And Clay Holmes yesterday, another scoreless outing for him is 29th consecutive scoreless relief appearance which breaks the Yankees record that was held by Mariano Rivera in 1999 29 straight scoreless outings so this guy just broke a record that was set by the greatest to ever do it and when Rivera set that record he was right in the middle of his prime it was peak Rivera in 1999 and they're just finding ways to do it, different ways to do it every game. Now, the one constant has been the rotation. The second constant has been the bullpen. And the third constant has been Aaron Judge. And now Judge is getting some more help up and down the lineup. You know, yesterday, case in point, Aaron Hicks, a three-run double, um, finally coming through with men on base, with the bases loaded. In fact, it was his first extra base hit with the bases loaded in more than five years. So the Yankees are looking for the sweep today against the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, they're 49-16. and 16. They're 33 games above 500. they They're on pace to win 122 games right now. And this isn't like a team on pace to win 122 games in late April or early May. It's Father's Day. It's June 19th, okay? And we are less than a month away from the All-Star break. And if you're still on pace to win 122, 123 games, that is just an incredible, incredible start to this season. Severino against Yusei Kikuchi, who's a solid pitcher, who's not having the greatest of seasons. Yankees looking for the sweep of the Blue Jays 
Uh, Mets game three of a four-game set. They'll play an afternoon game tomorrow. Um, today is Juneteenth. Tomorrow is the Juneteenth holiday. When we observe it, a lot of businesses and banks are closed, so it's a national holiday. Uh, and built into that will be an afternoon game uh, at City Field between the Mets and the Marlins. So it's a wraparound four-game series. But they also have an afternoon game today. It's Chris Bassett, who was good in his last outing against Sandy Alcantara of the Marlins, who's one of the best pitchers in baseball. So a tough test for the Mets. The Mets, in their own mind, you know, you look at this. I look at this as a good thing for the Mets. The fact that the the Yankees have been historically good. The Mets have been great. In any other year, the Mets would be not only the talk of New York sports, but the talk of Major League Baseball throughout the country. It's just that it happens to coincide with the Yankees doing something that like five teams in history have done in terms of getting off to this fast start. But the Mets in their own right have been unbelievable too. And a lot of similarities between the Mets and the Yankees, starting with the starting pitching. For the most part, it's been excellent this year. And even more impressive for the Mets because it's been excellent without their top two guys for most of the season. You haven't had Jacob DeGrom at all. And Max Scherzer has made eight starts. He was really good in those eight starts, but he hasn't been around for more than a month. And yet you still get these performances from Taiwan Walker is back to his all-star form from last year. Bassett has been good for the most part. Carlos Carrasco has been excellent. The question you have for the Mets is how much more can their pitching depth be tested? Because now, in addition to DeGrom, And Scherzer, Tyler McGill is out, so your starting rotation becomes even thinner. So that's going to be an issue for the Mets. But for now, uh, despite Atlanta and despite Philadelphia playing much better lately, the Phillies are on another winning streak. They've won their last five games to move five games above 500. Atlanta's cooled off a little bit, but they're within six and a half games of the Mets. They had gotten as close as four. The Phillies are eight games back, but yet the Mets still continue to maintain this lead. And they're 44 and 23. And that's 21 games above 500. The last time uh, the Mets were 21 games above 500 this early in the season was 1990, excuse me, 1986. The 86 team that won 108 games and won the World Series, their most recent World Series champion. They got out of the gates on a 36-15 and 15 start. You remember those days? And I was very young, but obviously it's one of the most covered teams in history. That Mets team just bludgeoned people. Um, they were talented. They knew they were talented. They were intimidating. They would come into town. They would take three out of four. They would sweep a three-game series. Uh, Then they would move on to the next town and do that to the next opponent. Well, this Mets team right now is playing as well or better than any other Mets team since that one. So that's the company that this Mets team is keeping. So when you look at the New York sports landscape and the sports landscape in general, yeah, we got a great day today, especially for golf fans. The final round of the U.S. Open, which should be highly entertaining. Psyched also that it always falls on Father's Day because you know what? Dads like me, we can kick back and just watch, you know, and uh, it's our day. So you do what you want today, hopefully (laughs) within reason. And uh, that's what I want to do. I'm looking forward to sitting back, watching the Yanks, watching the Mets this afternoon, watching a very entertaining final round of the U.S.O. But it's a great day. I mean, you know, I got my daughter, 
is bringing me coffee. My son is printing reads on the printer. I mean, it's being catered and for the hour or two that they've been up this morning. It's not that bad. It's a pretty good deal on this Father's Day. Curious if you're a Mets fan or if you're a Yankees fan, what is it out there? Not to throw cold water on all of this, but what is it out there that concerns you about your team? If, if there's one concern or a biggest concern going forward, like what will prevent us in this town from enjoying a Subway Series this year? Yankees yesterday, uh, their ninth straight win. With the Yankees in, early in the season, the storyline was they're doing what they need to do against teams that they should beat. You know, they were successful against the Orioles, who have tripped them up in recent years, the Rangers, the Tigers, um, the Guardians when they weren't playing well, the Red Sox when they weren't playing well. The Yankees did their job against those teams. And I was here last week uh, in the evening on Sunday evening, and we were getting ready for a stretch um, of basically four consecutive series against top competition in the American League. The Rays, the Blue Jays, the Rays again, and then the Houston Astros. We're just about halfway through that stretch, and the Yankees haven't lost. They swept the Rays. They've taken the first two games of this three-game series against uh, Toronto. You know, Yesterday, you have Jamison Tyone against Alec Manoa. Manoa's been as good as any pitcher in the American League this year, maybe outside of Nestor Cortez, and the Yankees beat him. The thing about Brian Cashman that I've always admired. And this is going back to last century when he traded for David Justice. And I remember the David Justice signing was one example of, you know, the big names back then were, you know, Manny Ramirez. Um, There were some of the biggest names in baseball that the Yankees were reportedly interested in. And then all of a sudden you find out that Cashman trades for David Justice, who ended up being an integral part of the 2000 Yankees. He was the ALCS MVP that season, hit that huge home run against the Mariners and a lot of other clutch hits that helped the Yankees win that World Series championship. The thing that I've always admired about Cashman, he's always been really good at the -the under-the-radar move. Now, last year at the trade deadline, the two big moves that he made, he acquired Anthony Rizzo from the Cubs, and he acquired Joey Gallo from the Texas Rangers. The Rizzo transaction has been a success. He is encamped as the Yankees' starting first baseman going forward. He's been productive at the plate. He's got a great glove. He's a leader in the clubhouse. He's a leader wherever he goes. The Gallo transaction obviously has not been as successful. In fact, it's been a failure for the most part. They're still in a position where they're going. Now, he's been better in the last two or three weeks They've been winning this year in spite of Joey Gallo. And because of their record and what it is right now, 33 games above 500, they're going for their 50th win today. Because of all of that, they have an opportunity here to let Gallo see if he can straighten himself out. I don't think he's going to. You know, I think if anything, he's only slightly better than what he has been so far for the Yankees. Going forward, I don't think that... He's a guy who's going to help you win a World Series. Now, the team could be so good that they win in spite of him, which is what they've been doing so far. But my point is, last year at the trade deadline, those were the two big moves that Cashman made. The the under-the-radar move that he made last year was 
trading Diego Castillo and Hoy Park to the Pittsburgh Pirates for an extra arm in the bullpen, Clay Holmes. And Holmes was awesome last year. Holmes came to the Yankees last year uh, down the stretch when they didn't have much in their bullpen outside of Jonathan Loizaga, and he was really good. His numbers after coming to New York last season, uh, let's see, in 2021, he pitched in 25 games. He was 5-2 and two with a 1.61 ERA, 34 strikeouts in 28 innings. A- excellent numbers, outstanding numbers. This year, he started off pitching just as well. And then you lose Loisaga, you lose Chad Green for the season, you lose Aroldis Chapman for a period of time, and all of a sudden, Holmes is thrust in the role as your closer. His numbers are ridiculous. Mentioned earlier, 29 consecutive scoreless appearances. He's got a 4-0 record in 30 games. He's pitched the most games in baseball. And a 0.28 earned run average. In 32 innings, he has struck out 33 hitters. Which, you know what that tells me right there? That tells me that he's learning how to pitch. The strikeout total is a little bit down from last year per innings pitched. And he's becoming more conservative with how many pitches he throws. Which is allowing him to pitch more often which leads to him having pitched in 30 games already this year, the most in Major League Baseball. So that was one under-the-radar move that Cashman made. And then another one was before last season. Here are the guys who Cashman gave up for Jamison Tyone. Michael Escato, Ronzi Contreras, Kanan Smith uh, Njigba, and Miguel Yajore. Those four guys for a pitcher in Jamison Tyone, who's on his way to the All-Star game. Had potential, had injury problems earlier in his career. You know, the Tyone thing, and if you're a Yankee fan, you're knocking on wood right now, but this is kind of in many ways making up for all the flyers that Cashman took in the past that didn't work. The Carl Pavanos, um, the Jarrett Wrights, the Kevin Browns, uh, the Corey Klubers. Um, the Tyone thing, he, he, you know, Cashman has had trouble in this area taking a flyer on a veteran pitcher, signing him for a little bit less money than his market would because of injuries or whatever reason. Well, he's finally hit on Jamison Tyone because he's been he's been outstanding. But the Clay Holmes story is what um, one of the biggest for the Yankees this this season. Uh, he spoke yesterday after closing out another win about breaking a record held by the great Mariano Rivera. Yeah, I mean, just for the fact that uh, it's uh, Martin Rivera, I mean, makes it uh, pretty special. He's you know, a guy just I grew up watching. I think everybody um, did. He's just um, what he's done in this game is obviously, I mean, it's pretty amazing. So just to be in the same category of just one little thing he's done, um, it's pretty cool. But um, I don't know, it's been, uh, the defense has been great. Uh, it's been just fun to um, pitch for this team, the catchers. Um, so it's just been it's been a fun little run. I think uh, you know, all of us hope to continue to keep it up. Defense has been great. That was the reason for the trade with Minnesota, bringing in Kiner Falefa, uh, getting a new catcher to replace Gary Sanchez, whether it's been Higashioka or Trevino. And especially with a guy like Holmes on the mound, the defense is especially important because his signature pitch is the sinker. And Boone spoke about that sinker. Don't sleep on his slider, though. The slider's a really good pitch for him. 
but but yeah i mean typically you know elite closers elite back end pitchers um you know typically there's a calling card pitch that makes them pretty special and, and obviously for clay it is that sinker a ERA of 0.28 after an ERA of 1.61 last season. In just about a year's time with the Yankees, he has pitched in 55 games and has an earned run average of 0.90. He's 9-2 and two and has 11 saves. I want to get into the NBA a little bit more. We mentioned the Kenny Atkinson story, which you heard in the update at the top of the hour, was hired as the new head coach of the Charlotte Hornets, which I thought was a terrific hire for a young franchise on the rise, and then backed out, leading to questions that I have anyway about the long-term status of Steve Kerr as the Warriors head coach. Why else would a guy like Atkinson back out of this opportunity, an opportunity that, frankly, he deserves, and, frankly, he's been waiting for since he was unceremoniously let go by the Brooklyn Nets in March of 2020. And it got me thinking about, with the Warriors now having won their fourth NBA championship in the last eight years, led by this core of Curry and Thompson and Draymond Green and Steve Kerr, And also you have to throw in President General Manager Bob Myers into that mix because he is the architect of this team. Now, Larry Riley, the previous general manager for Golden State, is actually the guy who drafted Curry and Klay Thompson, both excellent picks, especially the Klay pick. The Curry pick was kind of a no-brainer at that time. If you remember that draft in 2009, Knicks fans certainly do because the Knicks had the eighth pick that year. Donnie Walsh and the Knicks were ready to pick Curry out of Davidson until the Warriors picked him. The Clay Thompson pick was the, in many ways, more impressive pick because he was very much off the radar despite playing in the Pac-12, but he played at Washington State, not exactly a basketball hotbed. Despite being the son of a former NBA player, Michael Thompson, the Clay pick, number 11 overall in 2011, was a little bit off the radar, and then getting Draymond Green in the second round. But from that point on, Bob Myers, the architect of this Golden State Warriors team, and you look at a team like the Warriors, and in my mind, and tell me if you disagree, because I'm going back through NBA history now, and obviously the greatest dynasty that the sport has ever seen and will most likely ever see was the Boston Celtics, 11 championships in 13 seasons in the 1950s and the 1960s. And then you have the Jordan Bulls, six titles in eight years, two three-peats, 91, 92, 93. Jordan takes his hiatus to play uh, to play minor league baseball and then comes back and wins three more championships, 96, 97, 98, including the 96 team that won 72 games. Outside of those two dynasties, I don't know another one that is better than these Golden State Warriors. Now, I, I know there's others that have been out there, most notably the Showtime Lakers of the 80s. They won five championships, but over a longer period of time. But I just think that given the current financial constraints there are on teams and how much more difficult it is now to keep championship teams together. I think this is the third best dynasty in NBA history. Now, why the Warriors? Why are they so successful? Well, it's it goes a lot to do with who is at the top of their roster. And the best player on this team 
And throughout this entire stretch, the lead player on this team for this franchise has been Stephen Curry. And so much of your success in the NBA is based on the character of the players on top of the roster. Now, you go throughout the NBA. How many times do you hear stories of disgruntled superstars wanting a different location, wanting a different situation. I mean, James Harden does it every single year or wanting to weigh in on personnel decisions and help craft the team the way they feel it should be crafted. I mean, any general manager of a team that LeBron James is the star of is not going to have an ultimate voice. And that brings me to the Brooklyn Nets. And this is where Sean Marks, who in his first couple of years did a really nice job getting out from under the mess that was left by Billy King as a result of that hideous Boston Celtics trade for Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce. The first couple of years, Marks did a terrific job. He hired the right head coach in Kenny Atkinson and built that thing from the ground up. And just when they got to the point where they were a playoff team, he cashed in his chips. And unfortunately for Marks and the Nets, they cashed in their chips and they went all in for the wrong guys. Kevin Durant has never throughout his career been the lead player on a championship team. As great as he is, as great an offensive weapon as he is, he's a terrific defensive player as well. He's one of the most talented players the game has ever seen. He's never been the lead player on a championship team. He's only been the lead player on a team that has gone to the NBA Finals once. And that was early in his career when the Oklahoma City Thunder went to the Finals in 2012 and lost to LeBron in the Miami Heat. And then you have Kyrie Irving. And I don't know how many more general managers, team presidents, owners, governors, whoever is making decisions for these teams, I don't know how many more are going to make the same mistake of hitching their wagon to Kyrie Irving. Kyrie Irving is a talented player, yes, but Kyrie Irving right now at this point in his career is toxic. He's radioactive. He is not a winning player. Now, I can't sit here and say that he's never been a winning player. That's not fair, and that's not accurate because he was the second-best player on a championship team in 2016. That was peak Kyrie Irving when he and LeBron and Kyrie was almost as responsible for that comeback as LeBron. They were both fantastic that year. When he and LeBron put their heads down, went to work, and won the final three games of the 2016 finals to win the first championship for the Cavaliers. Kyrie, of course, hit the biggest shot in that entire series, tie game, late fourth quarter, out of the timeout, hits the three-pointer, Cleveland wins the championship. So I can't say Kyrie Irving's never been a winning player, but that was six years ago, folks. That was six years and two, maybe soon to be three different teams ago. And Sean Marks was so eager to get Kevin Durant in a Brooklyn Nets uniform inside that building and Kyrie Irving along with him, that he pretty much had to sell his soul. And everything that he did, all the right moves that he did to build this thing up, brick by brick, piece by piece, from the depths of the NBA, one by one, once he brought in Durant and Irving, they were undone. To the, fa- to the point where his head coach, who was as responsible for their success and their culture shift as anybody 
was let go before even being given the opportunity to coach Kevin Durant in one game. But that first season, and look, a lot of this has been lost to time, the, the memories of what actually transpired, because this literally happened a week before COVID. And of course, our focus as sports fans and human beings was shifted completely. And the NBA just went away for three months until it returned in the bubble. But right before the league was shut down for COVID is when Kenny Atkinson was let go. The Nets were on their way to returning to the playoffs. In fact, they did return to the playoffs when this league resumed and the season resumed in the bubble in Orlando. The Nets were invited. They made the playoffs without Durant, obviously without Kyrie Irving. And Atkinson was long gone by them. And then you go into, now Durant plays last season for the first time, and you have this opportunity to cash in whatever chips you had left, and there were still significant chips. Karis LeVert, Jared Allen, an all-star this year, by the way. You cash those in for James Harden. And despite all that, it almost worked. I mean, if... Kyrie Irving doesn't sprain his ankle against Milwaukee. I fully believe that the Nets win that series and probably win the NBA championship last year. But it didn't work out that way. If Kevin Durant's spinning three-pointer at the end of regulation of Game 7 was behind the line instead of with his toe on the line, I think the Nets obviously win that series because the game would have been over. I think they go on to win the championship. But it didn't work. It didn't work. And that's sports. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. But now where are they? They're at the point where Atkinson has just given up too much control to Durant and Irving. And that's not something you ever hear from Golden State. You know, Golden State, Bob Myers is the executive. He makes the decisions. Steve Kerr is the head coach. He makes the on-court decisions. Stephen Curry and Klay Thompson and Draymond Green are the players, and they fulfill their roles. And that's how it is within championship organizations. And that is something that the Brooklyn Nets have gotten away from. That, along with a whole bunch of money, has been the cost of doing business with Kevin Durant and, more specifically, Kyrie Irving. 1-800-919-3776. Let's hit the phones. Emmanuel in Flushing. Emmanuel, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. Happy Father's Day to you and your family. Thank you. You too, Emmanuel. Yes, thank you. Um, listen, uh, that Kenny Atkinson story kind of reminds me of when DeAndre Jordan did it with the Clippers. Remember when he signed with the Map with the Mavericks and then changed his mind and we signed with the Clippers? Uh, we know the rest was history. But I want to bring up the Nets because I'm, I'm glad he brought up the Nets because look, at some point we need to look at Sean Marks because Sean Marks because Sean Marks to me, I just think he's be honest. His 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 tenureship as Nets has been a failure. Yes, he got Kyrie, KD, and but his team has doing years they make the playoffs three times but no finals and no conference finals appearances most of the noise that we get on leon rules we're not doing a good job at some point we need to look at sean mark and say you know what this guy is the problem he has steve nash a guy who has no no coaching experience you you could have had guys like tom on mark jackson or any other coaching or kenny atkinson <laughs> yes kenny atkinson yeah he kenny had atkinson. kenny atkinson and, sorry and then kenny atkinson because I mean, I don't. I, I guess to be honest with you, I mean, the Nets, to be honest with you, has been a failure in the last uh, last decade, in, in my opinion. Other than the Knicks, that's my opinion. But at the same time, you know, we need to look at Sean Parker. Say he's also part of the problem because he's he's not not just doing a good job. 
well managing teams, but he letting Kyrie and KD have the power, and we all know it, it has not as has not worked well. I agree strongly with your point, Emmanuel. I think we need to take a long, hard look at Sean Marks, and there's been two different Sean Marks tenures since he's been in yeah. charge. There's been he took over a team that was the worst in the NBA. Mm-hmm. And, was a mess in terms of salary cap and contracts and bereft of draft picks, and he built them, along with Kenny Atkinson, into a playoff team. But everything he has done since then has not worked out. The goal, once Durant and Irving are in your building, is to be a championship team. They have now paid them for three years of service in the NBA, and I understand there are some circumstances that contributed, but they have not even, like you said, Emmanuel, gotten to the conference finals. Mm-hmm. Thank you, man. And take care and enjoy your happy Father's Day. You too. Weekend. Enjoy your day. Thanks for the call. Um, no, Sean Marks is culpable here. And this is my point. And this is my, my reason for comparing the Nets organization to the Warriors organization. The Warriors and St- Curry would never, ever dream of this. Curry's, this is what I do. I play basketball. I'm one of the greatest at this of all time, this is my role within the organization. I don't need any extra power. I don't need any extra perks. I'm just going to work as hard as I can at my craft and contribute to this culture that we have. And Durant and Irving have, for some reason, felt entitled to more than just that. It's a very simple equation when you look at it. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. You know, a lot of people in life, and it is Father's Day, a lot of people end up doing what they do for a living or a vocation uh, because of a strong influence in their lives. I certainly fall into that category. You know, for me, it was always the goal to work in sports, and I'm very fortunate that I get to do that in several different areas, including right here on ESPN New York. I love what I do here. Um, it's always been a passion of mine. You know, the, the love of sports for me was cultivated by a significant influence in my life, and I just felt it appropriate here on Father's Day to bring him in as a guest and chat a little bit about that shared love for sports, and that is Frank O'Keefe from the Woodlawn section of the Bronx. Uh, happy Father's Day. Well, happy Father's Day to you. I thought you were calling to take me out to breakfast. <laughs> this isn't better? Well, we'll see. <laughs> it is. Thank you. And happy Father's Day to you also. You are a great dad yourself. Don't, don't sell yourself short. I, I, would, not, I would never. All right, let, let, let's, let's go back down memory lane because it's a fun day, an appropriate day to do that. You know, you, you grew up and you, you're, you're – uh, your father, my grandfather, James O'Keefe, immigrated from Ireland, so he wasn't as ensconced as we know in uh, the American sports and not a huge fan. But at some point growing up in the Bronx with your friends, you became just an absolute sports nut, uh, extremely knowledgeable, something that you passed on to me and to a lesser extent my brother Sean, who is into it but not as crazy about it as I was. But a- as a dad growing up, what are your memories of bringing your kids to sporting events and sharing that? with them well it's just it is such a wonderful atmosphere to just be able to sit there and um, enjoy and talk about games and compare different errors of players that I may have seen and be able to tell you stories 
about players that I've seen, as I'm sure you're sharing with your son. Now, actually, I think one of the most moving moments we ever had was when you were nine or ten, and I took you to see Field of Dreams, and I never even realized what that movie was going to be about, and that was uh, really a very emotional moment for me, because to me that was all about uh, fathers passing their love for sports down to their sons. You were a diehard Yankees fan growing up, but interestingly, the first game you ever took me to was not at Yankee Stadium. It was at Shea Stadium. You got to see Pete Rose and Steve Carlton and Mike Schmidt. And uh, though, of course, uh, you were more interested in walking around the stadium and seeing what was going on. I actually had to bring in a car seat because... I guess you were about two years old, and you had to sit. I had to put your car seat into the seat in the stadiums, so you could watch the game. But I remember we had great seats. But I'm sure you don't remember. No, I don't. I remember being as a two year old particularly fascinated. I think it was the first time I'd ever seen a urinal, and I remember it being was. It was. It was. That, yes. You, you kept wanting me to take you back to the bathroom. <laughs> Fortunately, you know, I, I evolved a little bit as a sports fan growing up. You know, one one of the memories I have, 1993, it was right around Labor Day weekend. Um, we're home, and all of a sudden, uh, we get a call that. I think somebody had tickets available for an afternoon Yankees-Cleveland Indians game that day. And because this is what we did, it didn't matter that the game had started a half an hour ago. We hopped in the car. We drove down to the stadium. We probably got there in the fourth or the fifth inning. Why don't you pick up the story from there? Yeah, well, we were your mother and I were actually out shopping for furniture, and uh, uh, Kenny Gamble, a family friend who had, used to be an usher at Yankee Stadium when he was younger, took me to old-timers games in 1960 and 61, had tickets for uh, a Yankee contest. We jumped in the car, you, me, and Sean, and we picked up your buddy Michael Kaufman, and the four of us went, and we had really great seats along the third baseline, and uh, we got to see one of the greatest games in Yankee history where Jim Abbott pitched a no-hitter. Uh, against the Cleveland Indians. It was, uh, it was just, you know, one of those things. You never know what you're going to see when you go. You never know uh, what the surprise is going to be. And, it, and, and you know, those, that, that, those kind of games, as each batter gets up and they go through the lineup, uh, the drama that builds for each pitch, that's why baseball is such a beautiful game to watch. Well, I remember we got there in about the fourth or the fifth inning and looked at the scoreboard, and this is the old Yankee Stadium, and obviously before cell phones and all this information at your fingertips, the only thing we had to go by um, was that great old vintage scoreboard out in center field, and we saw that there were no hits, so you advised me, and I always kept score back then, and you advised me to run and pick up a scorecard just in case he continued, Jim Abbott, to pitch a no-hitter. And that was a great Indians lineup, too. Eh? Manny Ramirez, uh, Carlos Baerga, uh, I think Felix Fermin, who almost a couple of years later became the Yankees' starting shortstop unless, until Gene Michaels stepped in and it advised George Steinbrenner not to trade Mariano Rivera for him. Um, yes, that, <laughs> that would have been something. <laughs> but don't you do you remember what happened after the game when we left the stadium that day? Now again, right. all the experiences I've had in my life. Meme, go ahead. Baeger and for me, were walking around out in front of the Yankee Stadium, and they were signing everything. And I think we, we he you got them to sign your ticket. 
they signed my ticket stub. This is back when we had ticket stubs. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I was just going to say, they can't even do that you now. What would they that. do, sign your phone? Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, one of the other th- but this is fun. This is like what, what, what's fun to kind of think back and, and, and remember these moments growing up. Because for me, it did lay the groundwork for what I do now. And it's a lot of fun. But But how about for you? I mean, take... Me back, take the listeners back because, you know, for me, my sports memories start in the mid 80s. Um, for you, obviously, you know, you got to see a, a generation before that. And again, you grew up in the Bronx and you were a huge Yankees fan. What, what was it like being a sports fan in that time? What are some of your memories? Well, every year that I played Little League Baseball, the Yankees were in the World Series and uh, they had Mickey Mantle, they had Roger Maris. What was great for me was that uh, my older brother, your uncle, was a, was a New York Giants fan. And uh, <laughs> ironically, I probably would have followed suit, except that the Giants, of course, moved out to the West Coast. And then the Yankees were the only team in baseball. And the first year that they had New York to themselves, they won the World Series. And then they went on. You know, it was the end of the dynasty. But of course, you know, I got to live through 1961, which was so exciting with the home run race between Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle where, you know, it looked like both of them actually had a legitimate shot. And, and you know, it's unfortunately that late 90s uh, issue with Sosa and McGuire and, and Bonds sort of cheapened uh, what, what it means to hit that many home runs because those guys were hitting 60 home runs every year. But, I mean, no one, no one, no one had hit 50 back in those days. It was very rare for anybody to hit 50, and here you have two guys, and and 60 was like at a plateau that just because Babe Ruth did it, so no one expected anyone to ever touch that number, uh, and it was a very very exciting time. And and Maris, you know, he did it under a lot of duress because uh, he was fighting Babe Ruth and Mickey Mantle, two of the biggest Yankee icons, and. Uh, he still managed to pull it together. I mean, unfortunately, when you look back, that poor man was never appreciated in that season. I mean, he should have been cheered every time he came up to the plate, and he was actually booed. It was really weird. And then the next year, they beat the Giants with Ralph Terry on the mound, the guy who had given up Mazeroski, how different baseball was. This is the yeah. guy, he's pitching a shutout. He's on the mound. In the bottom of the ninth inning, they have a one nothing lead. Tying run on third, seventh winning game run on the, second, right? Seventh game in the World Series. Well, the tying run on third, winning run on second is maybe the greatest base runner in history, Willie Mays. Yep. And uh, this guy's now pitched eight and two-thirds inning. Two years before, he had given up maybe the worst hit in the history of the New York Yankees. And they go out to the mound, and they keep him in to pitch to a lefty. He's a righty. They keep him in to pitch to a lefty, and not just a lefty, Willie McCovey. And McCovey hammered the ball, but he hammered it right into Richardson's glove, thank goodness. Yep, and it ended That ball there. was, a, as they say, even McCovey said, he just, his biggest regret in baseball is that Richardson wasn't two feet shorter. Yep, and, and Mays, Mays would have scored from second, and the easily, easily would have won, won the World Series. You know, and it's incredible. The World Series would have changed. When you look at you know what Kevin Cash did in the World Series in 2020, Blake Snell, a former Cy Young Award winner, in the final game, I think he took him out after four innings, and it's amazing how how 
much the game has changed. Speaking of how things have changed, let me ask you to tell one more story because this is a good memory of mine also. Uh, the first time, now I was born in 79, Yankees win the, went to the World Series in 81, uh, but I don't remember any of it as I, I was two years old. And then the Yankees didn't go back to the World Series again in, in, in 1996. And as I've said on the show, I grew up a Yankees fan, much because of your influence, all because of your influence, in fact. So I never got to go to a Yankees playoff game throughout my whole youth. I mean, you mentioned you played Little League Baseball every year. You played Little League Baseball. The Yankees won the World Series. During that era in my life, they never even went to the playoffs. So finally, the Yankees are on their way to the playoffs in 1995. I finally get to go to a playoff game. And just to show how much things have changed, do you remember the story on how we obtained those tickets? Yeah, you were actually, if you think about it, you were playing a soccer match against Hayes in the current Yankee Stadium. Re Regis against Cardinal Hayes High School. 1996, yeah, at McCombs Dam Park, which was on the site of where Yankee Stadium is now. 1990, it it was actually, it was 95, right? Yes, 95, yeah. Yes, at the end of the season. And you were playing in McCombs Dam Park against Hayes, and then it was halftime, and the Yankees had just clinched the the playoff spot, their first spot in, in 14 seasons. And I walked across the street to the stadium, and I get to where all the ticket booths were. And there was not a soul in the area. And I'm looking around, and I'm thinking, this is weird, because the ticket booths were open. And I walk up to the guy at the booth. I said, are you selling playoff tickets? And he said, yeah. And there was not a soul there. So we got three really good seats to sit in left field and actually had a chance to chat with the Seattle Mariners center fielder during the game. Yep. Who told us that he would never become a Yankee at the time, <laughs> if you remember. And he was true to his word. <laughs> not only did he, he was true to, not only did he not become a Yankee, he spent much of his career tormenting the Yankees. He 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 certainly did. He was a great player, oh Ken Griffey was. And then the next season when uh, uh I guess you that you would have been was that you were, you were a senior or were you were actually in high school, out of school when the Yankees clinched the ALCS by beating the Orioles and going to the World Series in '96. Right, and your mother was out shopping. She does a lot of shopping. Took, at Mary O'Keefe, by the way. And I took I took you and your brother down to to sit out in front of the stadium all night. Yeah, my, well, a couple friends, home, couple shout-outs mother... to my friends Tim Callahan, Matt Rosenblatt, and and and, and Sean, who was a freshman in in high school at the time. Yeah. And I just remember a couple of hours later having to call home, and you had to come back and pick up Sean. <laughs> I had to get Sean, and I, I, I walked through the, the vacant lot, and I found him sleeping by himself. <laughs> and I had to pick him up and carry him to the car. <laughs> and, uh, and then, as bad as that was, you guys were not going to get tickets because there were so many people waiting online to buy tickets. And you had a soccer match the next day, which was Columbus Day. Yep. And I went down, and I saw where you were. I said, this is horrible. But as I was walking around the corner, I bumped into a buddy of mine uh, who was a member of the NYPD, and he was getting some overtime, you know, regulating the crowds. And I looked at him, and I said, uh, is there any chance you could help me out? He says, oh, I think I can. So uh, I managed to get up to the front of the line, and ironically, uh, <clears throat> they they were only allowing you to buy four tickets at a time. 
So, uh, but the, the police themselves were not able to buy tickets. So they used me to buy their tickets. So they kept moving me from ticket booth to ticket booth. And I was buying them their tickets. And of course I managed to get <laughs> tickets for Ross. But unfortunately they gave me a choice of games two or game six. And I remembered in 1981, I had tickets for game five of the ALCS, which never happened. So I said I wasn't going to let that happen again. So I, I made the wrong choice, and I picked game two, where I could have seen them clinch the World Series. Well, we could have seen them clinch the World yeah. Series. But it was still great to be there for a playoff World Series. It was. It was. And I remember that choice. I probably would have made the same one, take the bird in hand. Of course, as it turned out, game two, the Yankees lost 4 nothing. Greg Maddox shut them out in what felt like an hour and a half. And then in yes. game six, Greg Maddox did not have it. Joe Girardi hits the triple. Charlie Hayes catches the final out. We could have seen that. But I probably would have picked the guaranteed game as well. But you know what? Such is life. And that's being a fan. And those are all great memories, and I hope this uh, prevents me from having to buy you breakfast later today. But uh, I will I, see. Well, well you, I, we can move that to dinner. I will see you later this afternoon for Father's Day. Absolutely, so, ha- happy absolutely, Father's Day. and happy Father's Day to you, and uh, happy Father's Day to all of your listeners. And uh, thank you very much for this moment. It was right. a, a great Father's Day gift. He's been he he's been itching for years. Thanks a lot, Frank O'Keefe from the Woodlawn section of the Bronx. Uh, fun memories there, but no, that but that's where it started for me. And those are just fun memories of being a fan. Uh, it was crazy if you think back to that time of ninety five, ninety six, how much things had changed. Because seriously, the Yankees clinch in ninety five. Don Mattingly's going to the playoffs uh, for the first time, the only time in his career you would have thought, and, and the Yankees hadn't been to the playoffs in fi- 14 years, you would have thought that you couldn't get a ticket. We not only walked right up, or he walked right up, got three tickets for himself, my brother, and I. We were in the first row in fair territory in left field. Fast forward one year later, Yankees go to the World Series. And I understand we're, we're talking a difference between a wild card series and, uh, or the not the wild card, but the ALDS uh, and the World Series in 96. But we had to camp out overnight. And despite doing that, if he didn't run into a cop from the old neighborhood that he knew, we wouldn't have gotten tickets for that. But that's how great the demand was at that point. I I, I feel bad. I apologize to – we got eight tickets. I feel bad for the eight people that did not get to go to Game 2 in 1996. But uh, so much of life – I guess is about connection. So that was fun. Father's Day, uh, I get it from my dad. Uh, up until his own kids, myself, my brother, my sister, started playing sports, uh, he was as knowledgeable a sports fan as I've ever met. Then he focused his attention to his own children. So basically anything after, I don't know, 1985, he doesn't really know much about. But anything before 1985, that's your man, Frank O'Keefe. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe. On 98.7 ESPN.